0: Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hey everybody, today you're going to be hearing from Mr. Wayne H. Wayne has been sober since June 17th of 1984. Uh, Wayne is a Marine Corps veteran. Thank you so much for your service to our country, Mr. Wayne H. Uh, He made six trips to treatment. Before coming into AA, uh, as he described it, he was a hardcore atheist uh, walking into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how when he came into Alcoholics Anonymous, he was facing up to 20 years in a federal penitentiary for attempted murder on 19 individuals. Yes, Uh, He'll get into that story a little bit. And uh, he's also going to talk about dealing with um, grief. Um, And um, when I say dealing with grief, the recent passing of his son and his mom and his dad, all within a nine-month period, and about how he had a hard time dealing with that, I'm sure anybody would. He's also going to discuss his touching amends that he had to make to his second wife, son, and and daughter and I'll let him talk about that but enjoy Wayne H. So we are sitting here today with Mr. Wayne H. You say hello Mr. Wayne H.
1: Hello, my name's Wayne. I'm an alcoholic.
0: And what is your sobriety date Mr. Wayne?
1: June the 17th, 1984.
0: That's a uh, quite a long time ago, huh Wayne? Yeah,
1: sometimes it seems like a long time, sometimes not. <laughs>
0: All right, so um, what I'm going to ask Wayne to, to do first is go ahead and talk about, uh, obviously he's been an Alcoholics Anonymous for quite some time. And so help me, that's 33 years, is that right? 34. 34 <laughs> years. That's great, Wayne. Um, and so what I want to ask Wayne about first is I know, first of all, I want to say thank you for your service to our country. I know that Mr. Wayne is a Marine, former Marine, or I don't know if you say former Marine. Once you are a Marine, you are a Marine, right? Yep. And so Wayne is a Marine. And so Wayne, why don't you talk about kind of your, your service to the country, how you land, how you were in the Marines, how you landed in AA, because I know that's part of your story, and then we'll just take it from there.
1: Okay. I, you know, I went into the Marine Corps in the early 70s, um, I was, um, actually, actually might get into this later. I was trying to get away from wife. Number one kind (laughs) of, and my parents, um, (laughs) and it seemed like a perfect alcoholic solution to my problems. And so I I wound up in, I, I, I did very well in, in the Marine Corps. Um, like I said, from the early seventies through the mid nineties when I got out and I was, I was given a lot of very good positions for someone of my age and my rank. And I was given a lot of special duty, which, um, which eventually led to me being promoted regularly and life just going good for me. And, um, it made me, um, at some point valuable to the Marine Corps. And that was, um, both an asset for me and it became a detriment too. Um, which allowed me to um, get into a whole lot more trouble than I should have. And in 1979, they started sending me to the treatment. Um, they sent me six times between 79 and 84. And 1984, it finally took. And um,
0: so you went six times to treatment between 1979 and 1984. Were they? It seems like they were patient then, for whatever reason.
1: Well, they were patient because I. had... I had training and stuff that, that they couldn't do without. Um, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later, but it's um, so it made me valuable. And the worst thing in the world you can do for an alcohol, an alcoholic can be for you is valuable and special. And I was both and um, people liked me and people went to bat for me and they swept things under the carpet and they would um, their most important thing was to get me back to work so I could do the job that was valuable to them. So they sent me to a lot of local treatments where they still had access to me. And then in the end, when I was completely off the deep end and, and there was no way they could stick their necks out anymore, they finally started holding me accountable, and that was 1984. That's when I finally got sober, when I was in it all by myself and nobody was coming to my rescue. I actually had to do something rather than pretend. So,
0: And talk to me a little bit about your uh, spiritual uh were you a believer in god at the time
1: no no i'd 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 been an atheist for a long time i'd rejected god back when i was whenever i was young it's i was forced to go to church and i just never bought it i just never bought it and um and then um life and just circumstance and my evaluational life um, led me to the point to where there's no God. There was nothing that was that was allowing all the things that were happening that I was seeing to happen. And um, and as I got older, y'all people who believed in God were just cripples. You were emotional cripples, and you had to have a crutch. Um, and then I had some situations happen in my life that reinforced that. So all all six times I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was an atheist and um, a hardcore atheist.
0: So, to, can you explain that? So, when I hear, you know, like agnostic, agnosticism, which really I would classify myself as, right. was kind of, it's easy to be an agnostic, right? You right. just, you don't care either way. When you say hardcore atheist, does that mean you got into arguments about it?
1: Oh, I would, I would, um, I would always try and prove to you that your, your religious point of view was completely off-center and it you know, it... We, we could have long discussions I love particularly ar- arguing with men of the cloth um, you know they, um, I actually had fun with that and um, and then as I as I got more and more and more in my alcoholism and I became more violent and it, it went beyond arguing it it was if you tried to save my soul I'd hurt you um, and then that that was effective in pushing people who were religious further away from me. I bet. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> that that's yeah. a good way to do it, yeah. right? <laughs> it's,
1: it, it, it was pretty effective. Um, it, it didn't, didn't work out for me, but, um, but, but the most important part of all of that is that when a man is desperate, even a hardcore atheist, when you're going through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it changes everything. When you get into the, chapter four we agnostics and you start to um the things my sponsor asked me to do was to read the material try and understand the point it's making apply it to myself and then any problems any controversies anything that's going on in me i was supposed to talk to him about it and when i did that and then i got to listen to him by the time i get to the end of that chapter um i certainly wasn't religious i certainly didn't believe in god as i understand him today but i knew that there was a power in the universe that was greater than me
0: all right so take me through your do you remember you okay let me sum this up real quick so first of all we we know you're a hardcore atheist we know you're in the marines we know you've been to treatment six times what was it what 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 was it like to finally make it into AA? Was there some sort of turning point that happened for you there? And do you remember your last drunk?
1: Yeah, the turning point was actually my last drunk. I'd, I'd Like I said, I'd been to treatment um, five times before this last treatment. And I'd turned 30 years old in 1983, in October. Um, and we had a big party at my house. and um, And all of my all of my gifts were about, um, 15, 16 inches tall with slender necks. Um, this is always a good sign. You got an alcoholic on your hands, but, (laughs) um, I made it a little while after that. I'd just come out of my fifth treatment and there I was drinking again. And I, um, and I drank and, and drank for about four or five months. And the, um, and then the day came where we used to have a lot of parties at my house. And on the days that we had parties at my house, the routine was I don't get drunk early because we're having a party that night. So it's funny how, when you get into the big book later on, you see how they had predicted exactly where you're going to be, because I woke up the morning of the 16th of June. And I said to myself, because it was a party at my house that night, I can't get drunk early because there's a party. So. I went to the beer store and the new thing on the market in 1984 was Michelob dark. And they had this huge, um, display of Michelob dark. And I thought to myself, well, if I only drink Michelob dark, I'll be okay. And so on my third trip to the beer store that day, getting Michelob dark, um, I wound up drunk before the, um, the party started and when the party started everybody's having fun i'm having fun i'm cooking steaks one minute but then everything i tell you about after this point is is what i what i've read and what i've been told and it's well documented um
0: Uh oh if you've if you're reading about it and it's documented i got a feeling (laughs) where
1: yeah yeah I i went crazy um i tore a bunch of stuff up um I went inside my house loaded my guns ran everybody out of my house um the ones that weren't moving fast enough i used that marine corps hand-to-hand combat stuff on them and um and and people leave your house and a lunatic has a gun and um and then i barricaded myself in my house um with all my weapons obviously and um and people went to the hospital and then the cops came and cleared the area and got people out of harm's way and just waited me out and you had plenty of booze in the house and that I was a drunk and it was just a matter of time before I drank enough to pass out. And then for any of y'all military people out there, they told me I was passed out on my bed at port arms. So, um, I was a Marine, even in my drunkenness. And, um, and then they came in at 1220 in the morning after, um, I guess peeping in the window and ensuring that I was passed out. They came in and got me and they, um, and they took me and they locked me up. They interrogated me. They charged me for 19 counts of attempted murder. I think the actual charging was assault and battery with a deadly weapon and intent to inflict grave bodily harm. And um, and um, it was the first time that my command had not run right down and got me. You know, normally the way it happened is civilian cops would pick me up. They turn me over to the military and military police get me they call my command the command comes down and gets me um they take me to the barracks or home or wherever it is I'm living at that particular time and the next day I go in and I get chewed out by um by my superiors which a lot of which were my friends uh and they would sweep it under the carpet and then I'd be sent to a little treatment or something and I'd have to be a good boy for a while and and i'd be right back to where i was well it didn't happen that way this time they didn't come get me nobody um nobody was helping me this time so i was in it all by myself so i went crazy in the cell and they took me over and had me evaluated by a doctor at a navy um emergency room and um the doctor made them take the shackles off of me and i went crazy again and then uh, i always tell this story it's always funny i say two o'clock in the morning at the navy hospital they have Samoans hiding in the closet. Um, Samoans are great big guys. And um, I went crazy in the hospital, and about six of them came out of nowhere and had me in one of those I love me suits hugging myself in about three <laughs> seconds. And um, while he sat, well, I sat in the corner in the straight jacket while they talked about what they were going to do with me. And they carted me off and took me to a psych ward. And um, the rest of it is 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 just kind of history. Maybe we'll get into some of that a little bit later, but that was the beginning. That was the thing that made the difference was no one came to my rescue. I was looking at about 20 years in a federal pen. Um, and they put me in a long term treatment solely lock ward. Um, where I was engaged by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who was not intimidated by me or, or, um, he didn't—how valuable I was and how special I was was no interest to him. He treated me like every other drunk, um, and that made all the difference in the world going through the big book with him. So and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later.
0: But Okay, so well, what don't we go into that next? So you—so you, we had somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous coming down there to have a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that conversation and how that was the, I guess, the launching pad into Alcoholics Anonymous. And this time, I'm assuming you're still atheist, correct? Oh, yes. Correct.
1: Yes. And in fact, we'll, we'll talk about the conversations between him him and I about God. Uh, they put me in a long-term treatment facility. And the, the great thing about this facility was that it was open for AA members to come in on a daily basis and engage the people who were in treatment. And that's um a little different from how a lot of treatment centers ran. Later on in life, after the Marine Corps trained me as a drug and alcohol counselor and all, I ran treatment centers. It was much different than those centers. But this man would a uh, would appear every day and um he seemed to have taken a personal interest in me. And he wasn't intimidated by me. He wasn't um he was telling his He was sharing his experience, strength, and hope. I didn't know that's what he was doing in the beginning. I thought he was just really focused on doing something with me, and I didn't know what it was. Um, But he was drawn to me, and I was – he had a captive audience. I couldn't go anywhere. (laughs) So um, he talked to me, and and we developed a little bit of a rapport. And that's – when we did that, he basically – Um, pointed out to me that um, I was probably going to be going to federal penitentiary for 20 years because they were doing an Article 32 investigation. That's like a a preliminary investigation before they send you to the big house.
0: You know, that's very interesting you bring up Article 32s. I didn't know what they were until like earlier in the week. And at the time of this recording, there's a... uh, a Supreme court justice, uh, hearings going on. And I'm not going to go into all that, but, uh, they've been talking about doing those, uh, article 32s with the uh, FBI. So anyway, so they're doing these article 32s.
1: So they're doing this big investigation before they give me a general court martial. And he, he was right up front with that. It's like, and, um, um, you know, and I'd been special at work and they would always bailed me out and covered for me. And he was right up front, you know, they aren't, they aren't coming this time. Nobody's going to help you this time. Um, you're going to, if, if you, if there's a way for you to ever have a life, you're going to have to make the decision to do that. Um, and the desperation set in, nobody was going to help me. Nobody was on my side. And I'd read those steps over and over and over the first five times I'd been in treatment and I wasn't going to do them. But this time there was a little more motivation there. Um, and he offered to start taking me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous And he asked me to agree to three things, and those three things are probably the most important things a man ever asked me to agree to, is that we would start from the beginning of the book, um, on the first page that had writing on it, I would read the material and try and consider what the point of the material was, I would apply it to myself and then any concerns, thoughts, or anything else that was going on inside of me about the material, I was going to discuss it with him. Um, And I believe to this day that if a person goes through the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and applies those three things and does that, um, the outcome has to be good. Um, In my case, it was. It eventually led for me... um, being an alcoholic who was never going to accept it and an atheist to being someone who understood that there was a power greater than himself and, um, and actually knew, like it says on page 30 to my innermost self, I knew that I was an alcoholic and, um, there was no doubt. And my life was unmanageable by me. Uh, and that even though after the end of chapter four, going through the book with this man, Um, I came to realize there was a power greater than myself and the universe had been working for me for a long time And it would work more if I'd just let it It certainly wasn't a religious god or a god of my understanding today But it was enough and um, and that's the whole point of the book is um No matter how feeble my approach no matter how small the crack is in my armor in that atheist armor, it was enough for a God of my understanding to start to take me through um, and render me with a life that has always gotten better from there. So, so maybe that's a good place to kind of jump out of that. So,
0: so you know, you have mentioned a couple times that uh, that gentleman was not uh, intimidated by you. Um, people that are listening to this uh, cannot see what you look like, but I can tell you that his voice matches his stature. Uh, (laughs) And I could see how together with your voice and your Marine Corps training and your attitude uh, and how big you are, and I, I don't mean fat or anything like that. <laughs> He's a very sturdy guy. I could see how, uh, you could definitely intimidate somebody, but, uh, all right. So, so that kind of takes us through a little bit of, you know, your, your first step, uh, a little bit of, let's talk about the second step, you know, coming to believe in a power yeah. greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. So why don't you go down that path a little bit,
1: yeah, well, you know, the first the first 43 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous were really all step one. And that includes you add to that, all the Roman numeral stuff. So, um, I'm pretty sure that chapter four, we agnostic starts on page 44, if I'm not correct. But from there to page 57 is all we agnostic and that is all step two. It is. Um, and I was, I was completely godless. Um, I got here. I, I put no value at all in religious stuff or spirituality or any of the other stuff. So all the times I'd been to Alcoholics Anonymous before, and I'd heard these conversations or I'd read parts of this chapter of chapter four, which is all step two, I had, I'd done no more than scoff. It's, um, I, I scoffed, I belittled, I. And I did everything I could to put people off, um, and, uh, and do nothing but argue the the points with them, which, which really didn't help them or me. This time was different. I had, I had agreed to those three things and I started this book and, and my reading with this guy was, was like this. He would give me an assignment. I may or may not read the assignment. And then the next day when he came in, we would go over what I was supposed to have read. And that usually meant he and I read it together and we read it in short pieces and we would read a little and we would discuss, um, and he would remind me each and every time I started to balk and each and every time I started to argue and all this other stuff that I had agreed to consider what was written on the pages, apply it to myself and then discuss it with him. So he had a way of effectively taking away the argument side. So I was forced to focus on those things. Um, And that's not a real long chapter, but it kind of builds on itself as you go through. And by the time you get down to um, the latter part of the chapter, you're starting to look at things like um, the universe and, and, astronomical issues and um the science um of everyday life and see i was i was i was real big in science in fact i used to use a lot of that as argument about it being science um it came that he he used the very things that i thought i knew something about to pull me in and to start to see how it was greater than me. It's, um, I remember I had this coffee cup that I'd been given by people that, um, work for me a long time ago. It was valuable to me. It was, and I remember it was hot one day and he says, well, just let it go. And I won't tell you what I said to him, <laughs> but, um, and he says, Wayne, you're afraid to let it go. Why are you afraid to let it go? And, um, you know, i used some obscenities with him, but I basically said, It'll break, and he says, "Well, gravity is more powerful than you." Um, The sun coming through the blinds and being in my eyes when I'm trying to read the book, he would he would he would ask me things like, "Won't you make it go back down?" Um, And again, I would say things to him that I'm not going to say on this recording. But he kept making a point of it, and then he would go twist a little knob on the blinds and say, even those blinds are more powerful than you, Wayne. They can, they can block that thing right out. They can take it away. But, you know, it was little stuff. Um, and by the end, he says, so um, the fact that you can tell me where a given star is going to be on a, at any point in the future, um, the fact that the fact that we can tell you exactly what time the sun's coming up and going down and all this other stuff. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, basically indicated that there were, there were forces in the universe that were greater than me forces that I had no control over. Um, and it never occurred to me that that would be a higher power until I'm actually looking at it and realizing there's, if I don't have a belief in anything but the forces that are actively working in our universe, that I have no control over, that makes them more powerful than me. And the um and the last thing I'll do on that. And I used to be a them, they, and there, and it, and all this other stuff. You know, I was always talking in generalities. And um and rather than asking me who they were or who was them and all the other stuff, which is normal stuff I'd get from people. Um, He would say, I don't know who they, them, there, and it, and all this other stuff is, but they seem to have a whole lot of power over you, Mm -hmm. and you're a pretty powerful guy, but for some reason, they're eating your lunch, and you don't have any control over it. (laughs) So it was obvious to me that um, I'd met my match. so. (laughs) So perhaps that's a good place to stop on that one
0: so let's talk about then step three and uh so and for the listeners in the home who may not know what step three is it's made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of god as we understood him so you're obviously in this kind of morphing uh, process of trying to figure out exactly what god is as you understood him but talk about talk about that process
1: john that's that's a good transition there because that's exactly where i needed to go after after we had that conversation so here i am um obviously admitting that there's things working in the universe that i have no control over they're more powerful than me um and at that point he starts talking about well, whatever it is that you found, whatever it is that you now understand, it is now time for you to start praying to and talking to that force, whatever it is. Um so we're looking at my at my wallet and, you know, pictures and all this other stuff, and he points out to me, he says, The wife doesn't care if you come back. The kids are better off without you because they were in the house the night that you tried to kill nineteen people. Um work doesn't care how valuable you are they don't care what you know they don't care what you can do the only thing they care about is that you're you're a lunatic and they're going to send you to jail for 20 years um and all those credit cards are maxed out so tonight when you go back and i found out he stole this from somebody else you throw that wallet under your bed and tomorrow when you're getting your wallet out maybe you can start to pray to this force in the universe that you've come to know and i wasn't going to do that i I I wasn't going to do that. It's, um, I always tell people he hypnotized me, you know, he planted a suggestion in my mind because for some reason I went back to my room and I threw my wallet under the bed. And the next day, this hardcore atheist that hadn't said a prayer in forever, unless it was forced whenever I was a little kid was on my knees digging out my wallet, and the words that came to me and the words that I said were, God, I don't know what you are, where you are, or even if you are, but I need some help. Um, I didn't have that white light experience that Bill Wilson had, but I can tell you, whenever I stood up that day, something had changed in me. Up until then, I'd been in this treatment facility. I wouldn't hold your hand. I would not say the serenity prayer with you. I wouldn't say the Lord's prayer. I wouldn't do any of this stuff. But shortly after that morning, I went out and I was holding your hands. I was, I was saying the serenity prayer. In fact, in real short order, I was saying the serenity prayer to myself on a regular basis. And for the first time I was actually joining in when you said the Lord's prayer rather than just standing there scoffing. Um, my load was lighter i didn't know how and i didn't know why all i knew was that something was changing inside of me something my attitudes were changing and i was taking actions that were not actions that i was i was planning on freely doing um so it doesn't matter to me how that happened uh, it doesn't matter to me why that happened. The only thing that matters in retrospect is that it happened. Um, something happened in me that allowed me to begin to have attitudes and take actions that were totally alien to me prior to that. Um, and that was the beginning of the process of turning my life over to God. And and to, to stay on step three, step three, as you read through the book, you come to page 60, and you have the ABCs, and then it says, being convinced you're now at step three. And as I'm reading this book with a sponsor, we get to that point and he says, are you convinced Wayne? And I said, no. He says, well, that's okay. Because the next three pages are going to convince you. Mm -hmm. And literally you go through the next three pages and on page 63, once again, you're at step 3 and some people choose to say a prayer kind of like this, and it's the third step prayer. Um and because I am considering what's written, I'm applying it to myself and I'm and I'm discussing how I feel and what I think about it with him. It's time for us to discuss that prayer. And by this point, I'm going through this prayer. This is a very important prayer to me because we hashed it over and over and over to make sure that it was a prayer that I was willing to say. Um, and I thought I would have to change it drastically because they say the words are optional. But as we went through that prayer, that prayer, when I, when you dissected, when I dissected it and I considered it piece by piece, um, it made perfect sense. Um, you know, God, I offer myself to, to thee, to do with me as thou wilt. Um, I, there's more to it. Than that. Anyway, I, I'm just saying, when I read that and we talked about it, it's like I'm saying, I can't do this by myself. There's no way I can beat this thing by myself. God, I would tried before. Um, and then it's, um, relieve me of the bondage of self. By this point, I was fully aware that my life was trash because of me, and it was the bondage of self that had caused all of that. And once again, there's an admission there that it is me trapped in here that can't get out. I can't spring the trap. I have to have something to help me spring the trap. And then the most important part of that prayer is, and I'd never considered this until that day, was, um, take away my difficulties; that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. And for the first time, I saw, and my sponsor pointed out to, that my difficulties going away had nothing to do with this. It had nothing to do with me getting better. My difficulties going away were going to be the evidence to the next guy that came in who would see that my difficulties went away. And then the program of Alcoholics Anonymous would be attractive to him. And I was seeing people around me whose lives had been trash, who were now saying their lives were getting better. And that was attractive to me. So their difficulties being removed um, had helped me through power and love and way of life that they were living. Um, and their problems going away Served no purpose to them, but it served a purpose to me as an onlooker, seeing that it was possible. And if it can work for them, perhaps it can work for me.
0: Nicely said. All right, I'm going to take a little break here. I'm going to read a little something, then we'll pick up. Uh, We'll be continuing our conversation with Wayne H. in just a moment. Just as a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. There you can find all of our uh, previous episodes as well. We have uh, 40 plus episodes at this point. Uh, You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if the spirit moves you. And you know, and I've had people ask me, about this before and I just want to bring it up. Everything goes directly into Sober Speak. I'll never make a penny on this, but just so you know, okay? Uh, Please keep in this, please keep this in mind that this podcast is funded by you, the listener. Um, Sober Speak is self-supporting through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay. Now back to Mr. Wayne. All right. So Wayne, I want to go into, uh, uh, a little bit of your amends process now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, tell me about, I, uh, you know, you'd mentioned a family there, mm-hmm. uh, and getting sober and talk to me a little bit about the amends process with your family when you got sober.
1: Okay. Well, after I got sober, obviously the speed through it really quick, obviously there's a fourth step that i'd never tried before there's a way to do the four step by the big book where you do columns and different types of four steps you know fears resentments uh, financial sex and then i had a column there for people who didn't like me and i didn't like them <laughs> um and actually getting it all down and the four columns where i actually start to accept some responsibility and then i tell it all to somebody. And then I actually take a look at my character defects. So that's been a lot of time on for character defects. Um, before I start humbly asking God to remove these things that I've been beating people over the head with forever. Um, God, and that's a real quick four, five, six, and seven. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But I've been married four times. Um, you know, the, um, the amends process. I had a lot of amends to make. I had, uh, not just to family, but to people I work for and on and on and on. But it's important that, and John's led me into this on the family side, because there's a real important part in here. When I, when we wrote out my character defects and we worked on those, the reason for getting clear on those was so when it came time for me to start making amends, I would be very aware of not only um, who I hurt, Um, but how I hurt them and what I hurt them with. Um, And when it came time to make amends, we wrote out all my amends and we rewrote them and rewrote them. And my sponsor edited them to the point to where I had it on three by five cards. One side of the card said, I'm an alcoholic. I'm in a program of recovery. Cleaning up the wreckage of my past is important. And if I fail to do it, I probably won't overcome drinking. The other side of the card has the bullet points of what I'm, supposed to make amends for. Well, when we evaluated my amends and it was time for me when I was finally out of this lockdown, this um treatment facility, we decided that the three amends that I needed to make were to my second wife and two kids that we had. had. Um and those were going to be my first amends. And those were the most terrifying amends I could ever think about making. And one was to a little girl, um Who was born in 1979, which happened to coincide with my first treatment, who was severely, um, she had severe mental and physical defects, never progressed beyond about three months of age, never spoke um, or anything along those lines. Her brother, um, who was born in 76, so he was a few years older than her, and his mom, which I basically abandoned. So I abandoned her with a special needs kid and a little boy. Um, and here I am getting sober on wife number three and she was wife number two, um, and we decided that those were the amends that I needed to make. Um, and my men's was supposed to, first of all, I balked at making the amends to that little girl. She was never going to understand anything. She never knew what went on. She didn't, she was not cognizant of any of the stuff so it was pointless to go and make an amends to her um and that's when the wisdom of a sponsor comes in and he said to me you need to make that amends to her because you need to look her in the eye and hear yourself tell her what you did um and then you need to go into the room with that little boy who you abandoned and who had everything withdrawn from him because the focus was on his little sister he truly was abandoned by more than just you. He was abandoned totally. And, um, and you need to have that conversation with him and you need to make sure he understands that there's nothing he did that, um, that made this happen. He wasn't responsible at all. Um, he needs to know what he deserved from you as a father. Um, and you, you and you also need to talk about the things that, um, that you, um, that you took away from him that he deserved and that you failed to give him that he deserved. Um, and that was going to be an ongoing process. And then that wife in the next room, those three amends happening on the same day, I was supposed to make amends to a woman that I'd put through literal hell and not only through hell, but abandoned and, and wife number three was her best friend to add insult to injury. So those were some living amends. Well, to, um, to kind of sum that up real quick, the little girl that I was making amends to in 1985 um, died in 1988. She finally passed away. Um, one of the things that I had to hear myself tell her was how I used to stand beside her crib because she was inconvenient with a bottle in one hand and a pillow in the other, thinking about smothering her because she wasn't dying as quickly as they said she was going to die. Um, And, um, you know, those, those were terrifying amends to make that little boy that I went into the next room with, this is the power of amends. I'd spent a lifetime making amends to that little boy. And on June the 6th, 19 or 2017, um, he was one of us. He had never gotten help for what, for his problems. And he didn't wake up on June the 6th, 2017. Um, and, um, had I not made amends to them, You know, the the burden that I would have carried all those years and I'd still carry today, um, would be incredible. But because I'd made the amends, because I'd done the hard work and I'd done the terrifying stuff to clean up the wreckage of my past, I was able to walk through their deaths. Um, I'm able to sit with that ex-wife and have a reasonable conversation. I'm able to speak freely with her about what she deserved, um... And I'm, I'm, I'm willing, I'm able to hear her talk about, um, who I was without anger or animosity or anything else, because it's the truth. Um, and those are gifts that I thought I would never have. So, um, those three amends are, I think are the ones that we were, we were pointing at and I had many, many, many more like that, but, um, I'm not free until the amends are done. Um. And the last thing on amends is and then we all have those that we can't make without hurting others and you know those are across the bear that is the stuff that i carry with me every day into relationships where i still have very close relationships with some people that i owe amends Um, i can't make them because i'll hurt them or somebody else and each and every time i'm with them and they are happy and we're laughing and we're having a great time There's always that little thing that runs through my head that says, boy, don't you wish you could clear that up? Um, but never at their expense, you know? So, um, the fact that we keep those and, um, and be tortured by them sometimes, um, the torture that it gives me is nothing compared to the harm I would do if I, if I got it off of my chest at their expense. So, Where do we go from here, John?
0: (laughs) So I believe you had mentioned that um, when that son of yours passed away, Mm -hmm. there was some other family uh, deaths at the same time. Yeah. Would you talk about that period of your life? What happened? What it meant to you?
1: Yeah, here's the moral of the story is um we tell our sponsees to be honest, to talk to us about stuff that's going on to um to stay engaged, um to um to be, you know, to be up front um and to uh and we tell our sponsees to do everything, but that just doesn't just apply to sponsees. We have to continue to do that ourselves. On um July 21st, 2016, my dad died. Um my dad and mom had not spoken for 47 years. Um, my mom took his death so hard and that she died on August the 15th of 2016, so 24 days apart. Um, and then, what, nine months later, um, ten months later, uh, my son, who had our problems, um, didn't wake up. He just didn't wake up. You know, he was, um, he was one of us. And that was June the 6th, 2017. I had so much stuff going on, even though I'd made amends, even though I'd cleaned up the wrecked of the past, I got so focused on the woulda, coulda, shouldas. And, um, you know, and so all these things were coming to mind that were, that were haunting me, which were, you know, it says our problems real or imagined, well, imagine problems can take you out so i'm in the middle of grief and i and i'm not handling it good and the reason i'm not handling it as good is because i'm not doing the things we tell our sponsees to do be honest be up front talk about what you're going through and all this so all my friends are coming to me because i've had three deaths in a relatively short period of time and at the time i was having some marital issues and other stuff um and the um I was saying, I'm fine. It's just life. You know, all the one-liners that a person can do to get people to pat you on the back and say, hey, if you need me, call me and go away. Well, um, that eventually led to me having a plan to to commit suicide. Um, and um, And everybody was pretty much doing what I wished them to do. I was telling them I was fine and everybody was buying it. But in reality, I was the furthest thing from fine. Um, And here's the power of one person. One person that I knew, one person in Alcoholics Anonymous who just mysteriously kept popping up in my life over and over and over, which was someone who didn't normally pop up in my life over and over and over, was the one person who was telling me how they would feel if they were going through what I was going through, And and they wound up. Every time I turn around, they were there and they were giving me encouragement, but they were also speaking the truth. Um, And they were encouraging me to start to talk. Um, And here I am with this plan. I go to Crested Butte um, in July of 2017, and I have no intention of coming home. Um, I have a very good plan for not coming home. And somewhere in the process of that, being encouraged and being presented with the truth, all of that started to lift. And that one person, that one person who didn't buy my pad answers and my go away lines, um, made all the difference in the world for me and the shroud lifted. And by the end of that week, I no longer wanted to kill myself. And for the first time in a long time, I was actually doing the things that we tell our sponsors to do. And that is be honest about how I feel. Talk to people about what's going on. Um, And in a way you could say that saved my life. But the most important part of that is, is one person went with their gut, with their intuitive thought, they stayed with it. Um, and they made a difference in my life and we've heard, and we hear that story in society over and over and over how one person being kind or taking time or just sitting and listening or saying the truth makes all the difference in another person's life. Well, that occurred for me. And I'm still sober and Alcoholics Anonymous with more than 34 years today um, because that one person cared. And today, my motto is, um, you're going to hear what's going on with me to the point to where you're probably going to go home and say, I don't know if I want to go see Wayne again because <laughs> Wayne's going to talk about real stuff. So... um you know, it's, it's a lifesaver and it's, um, and it has changed. Last thing I'll say is change my life because now when I have a thought about somebody, when I have a concern about somebody, when something's going on, I know that that thought to pick up the telephone or that thought to go across the room and talk to them, that thought to sit with them and make a few minutes, um, is more than just a thought. It's something that I need to act on and it's not always that, my gut instinct is true. Um, but I don't want to be the person who had the thought, um, and didn't act and, um, uh, changed my life. And, um, I, I don't know, maybe somebody listening to this today will have something going on in their life or something's going on in the life of somebody that they're close to. And this will be the thing that says, pick up that phone, call them, go see them. Um, and tell them exactly how you would feel if you were going through what they're going through, because it can make all the difference in the world.
0: God bless you. Very well said. Okay, so we're getting toward the end of the hour time, and I noticed that you brought your big book. I didn't know if there was anything in particular in there that you wanted to read. Uh, if there is something... Now would probably be the time to get it, and R- Wayne is reaching for his book, <laughs> and it looks like he's going to turn to what page is this going to be? Wayne? It's going to be one fifty-two. Page one fifty-two. That'd be in a vision for you. Am I correct about that? That's in that? a
1: vision for you. yep. Yeah.
0: For those of you reading along at home, you want to turn to one fifty-two in your big book, and
1: uh, I am, I am in, I am. I am really big into service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that means that not only is God important to this atheist, but the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is important to this person who used to be an atheist. Um, and on the bottom of page 152, I'm actually on the wrong page here. It says, um, how is it that, Um, How is that to come about? I suppose it's talking about the fellowship, um, meeting people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Where am I to find these people? You're going to meet these new friends in your own community. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in sinking ship. If you live in a small place, there are hundreds, high and low, rich and poor. These are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the part I like the best. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. You will be bound to them by new and wonderful ties, for you will escape disaster together, and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life you will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as their self, as thyself. Um, that is one of my favorite paragraph in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that speaks not only to the fellowship, it speaks to service. Um, and there's a point, there's a spot in the book where it says we improve our spiritual condition through work and self-sacrifice for others. And this idea of, giving of myself so that others can survive and rediscover life um, is what Alcoholics Anonymous is really all about. I can't keep this unless I give it away. And the idea that it is work when I'm doing it, when I'm in service to Alcoholics Anonymous, it never seems like work Um, and that it's sacrifice. It never seems like sacrifice anymore. It seems to be the next thing I'm supposed to do. And it seems to be the only right thing because the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, those, those new and wonderful ties that bond us together um, have become the highlight of my life. And the idea that I would wake up and do anything other than um, give of myself so that others may have this gift that I was so freely given um, doesn't seem like a chore at all. It just seems like my mission, um, what I'm supposed to do. What the man did who came to me and said, I'm going to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with you. I only ask that you do three things. Consider what's written and the point that it's making. Apply it to yourself and discuss any thoughts and feelings that you have about it with me. That seems pretty simple. And in the process, I got to survive. I got to rediscover life. And a man who deserved 20 years in the federal penitentiary got to walk away a free man um, as a result of example of working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That doesn't happen in the real world that only happens in a place that i know called alcoholics anonymous where lives are changed um and where fellowship and god and the bonds that we have are the most important things in my life so that all shut up
0: no that's great god bless you my friend thank you for coming to the sober speak studios as i like to call it (laughs) this is
1: sophisticated man if they could just see all this this sophisticated equipment here you know and all the and you know that is a joke but all the people who have been here before me will be able to get a good chuckle out of that because they know exactly (laughs) what we're saying
0: yeah, this is my uh, combination uh, guest bedroom. We got yoga mats over there. I do <laughs> yoga. I watch Dallas Cowboy football games on that particular screen right there. And so, he's gonna
1: make me all. He's gonna make me do it all today. That's yeah. right.
0: <laughs> Before you get out of here. All right. So uh, once again, I want to thank uh, Wayne for coming in here and sharing with us. Uh, hey, so what do you think? We want to hear from you. Uh, What do you want to hear more of? What do you want to hear less of? Uh, We aim to be of service. Uh, Are there any questions you have of the guests, like Wayne, that you're curious about? I can get him emails. We welcome all your thoughts and feedback. We would love to hear from you. You can leave us a message at well, there's a couple different ways that you can leave us a message. Number one, you can just email us directly at feedback at SoberSpeak.com, or you can go to the website SoberSpeak.com, click on the Contact Us tab, and you can leave a voicemail there. Uh, If you would like, there's a little uh, microphone icon that says uh, leave us a message and you can leave us a message there. Um, What else do we have here? All right. So I'm going to close it up with another part of the big book. This is page 164 uh, from the big book. And these are the last two paragraphs. This is it. It says, "Abandon yourself to God as you understand God, much as Wayne, much like Wayne did in the beginning, as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge." the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. If you're ever in the uh, Frisco, Texas area, you want to see either myself or Wayne or several of the other speakers that you have heard, come to the Frisco group. It's our home group. We'd love to uh, welcome you there. But anyway, God bless you. Uh, Thanks again, Wayne, for being here. Thanks you, John. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.